Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Catherine May and welcome to The Wintering Sessions, the podcast that sets out to learn from the times when life is frozen. This week, I'm talking to comedian, broadcaster and Cold War enthusiast Angela Barnes. Angela has zero tolerance for anyone reassuring her that she's pretty. It talks over her lived experience and it does nothing to change her self-perception. Here, she discusses the right to feel ugly and living with persistent depressive disorder, which has made her whole life feel like the drizzly English climate. But it's also made her more able than most to endure the hard knocks of living as a stand-up comedian. So Angela, it's amazing to have you on the podcast. We've been working together for a while, haven't we? And so I had this ambition to get you on my podcast because I knew you'd be really cool. So thank you for agreeing, really. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm sorry it's taken a while to to sort of pin us down. We had Christmas and all sorts of things in the way, didn't we? But we got there. We're here. Yeah, life life is getting in the way. You'd think, seeing as we're all at home all the time at the moment, that everything would be easy to arrange, but it just isn't. It really isn't. For this project I've been working on, you know, with you, a lot of it involves recording interviews. And I thought, well, everyone's at home. It's going to be really easy. And it's been an absolute nightmare just pinning people down during this. Because I think it's very easy to say, I can't do it today, you know, actually at the moment, because um, it's just, life's just hard, isn't it, at the minute? (laughs) Yeah, we're we're all at a point of overwhelm, I think. And I, I mean, I do a couple of events a week normally at the moment, like online evening events. And actually, there's more events coming. I mean, I know you're used to gigging, so this is really normal for you. But for me, that's a really unusual number of events to be doing. And you have to kind of put a stopper on it because 
I can't be doing a thing every night, for example. Uh, you know, it's really, it's a really different way of managing your time. The whole, th- everything's different. Everything's different and confusing. It is. I mean, I, I find it hard to say no to things at the best of times, you know, whereas it was always, if I was away gigging, it was yeah. easy to say no to doing something else. She said, well, I can't do that because I'm in Scotland or I'm in wherever I am. Yeah. Whereas when I'm always at home, I find it even harder to turn things down because you think, well, they know that I've not got anything else on. <laughs> they know that I'm at home. Um, <laughs> they you know, and, it, and it's really, it's really difficult to say no to things. And I've had to, because I've got, I've been very lucky as a comedian to have been working consistently through this last year. And I know how lucky I am. So I'm very reticent to moan about it, but you know, there's a lot of, of people on Facebook go, oh, I'm so bored. I'm so, I'm like, I'd love to be bored for a bit. I really would. <laughs> just, can I have just a couple of weeks to be bored? It's, it has. The pandemic is 50-50, yeah. isn't it? Like half of the people are bored senseless and the other half are completely up to their eyeballs in childcare oh, and gosh. caring responsibilities I mean, and fitting work around that, you know. That's one thing where I've felt very smug about my life choices is that I haven't had to worry about homeschooling. And um, I know, Catherine, I feel terrible saying that to you, but I can't imagine the extra pressure. I, I can't moan because it's just me, my fellow and my dog. And we're, you know, he's been able to work from home consistently. We're fine. You know, so I moan about it. But actually, yeah, we are definitely the lucky ones. No, I mean, honestly, I think the same is, is true for us. We're, you know, we're very well adapted to this kind of life, to be honest. And also, you know, we live in a town where there's all the facilities that we might need, which I don't think is true of every town now. You know, there's a green grocer yeah. and there's a you know chemist and Absolutely. stuff like that. Nothing has been very... And a beach. I mean, having a beach has made a big difference. But yeah. That helps, right? Being by the sea. Yeah. Two things that I think have, have definitely helped have been near the sea for me because I live in Brighton and having a dog which has meant I have to go outside the house every day. Yeah. Yes, I think that's really true because I'm quite new to the whole dog thing and you can't oh, yeah. not walk them, can you? You have to you oh, have yeah. to take them out. Oh, yeah, she won't. Ha- yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk yeah. about what we're here to talk about because this is the wintering sessions. So we always talk about a winter in, in our lives. Yeah. And you've proposed to me a really interesting format of winter, mm-hmm. I think, um, which is living with PDD, persistent depressive disorder, yeah. which means that your life feels like a kind of low grade winter most of the time. Yeah, that's how I describe it. So the, the persistent depressive disorder isn't quite as bleak as it sounds. It doesn't. It's just a sort of constant low level, low mood. Now I take medication. I have done since I was eighteen, and I'm what am I now? Forty four. So I'm pretty well controlled by now in my in my situation, but I describe it in terms of climate. So I think a lot of people's lives are a sort of Californian climate in that most of the time it's lovely weather. It's not necessarily perfect weather, you know, no one's life's perfect all the time, but it's fine, you know? <laughs> and then out of the blue somewhere there'll be a tornado that whips into their life and and this sort of wintering that is forced upon someone for a specific amount of time and then goes and the climate restores whereas I think yeah. I've got a very British climate going on in my head in that it's a sort of low level drizzle <laughs> a lot of the time it's never that good that great but it's also <laughs> never that bad well I say never that bad I've had me you know 1987 storm and I've had my there's been moments of big weather events 
but generally it's just sort of a bit drizzly um, is how I describe it. And that's not to say that I'm miserable. It's a different thing. It's just a, a sort of, it's always there, this condition, this uh, PDD. Is, it's just always in the background of everything. And I have what they call like atypical depression. So an atypical doesn't mean rare. It just means sort of opposite to other diagnoses. Whereas a lot of people, their depression manifests in not being able to eat and not being able to sleep and insomnia. Mine is very opposite to that in that I, you know, comfort eat and I want to sleep a lot. So this last year, I dread to think how much I've slept through it because that is my coping mechanism <laughs> is, is yeah. sleep. I asked if we could record this at 9.30 in the morning because it meant I, I would get out of bed and I wouldn't waste the day. <laughs> oh, really? Is that what you do now? You, like, you, yeah, you make people In the morning because then I'll get up. <laughs> Because that's the other thing that the pandemic has taken away. I, I have very little structure in my life because I'm a stand-up comedian. But whatever structure I had has disappeared with the pandemic, you know. So I, any opportunity yeah. I have to pop a bit of structure back in. Things like I have now on a Monday morning at 10 o'clock every Monday morning, I have a 45-minute uh, online Zoom conversation with a German lady in German. Because a because I just wanted to improve my German, I've really started to, to to lose it, and b because it gets me going on a Monday morning. That's ten o'clock on a Monday morning. I have to be online, and that's yeah. Whereas I am so the opposite to that. I would I would so resent that if that was a regular fixture in my diary. I would get angry with it after about two weeks. And be like, I've got no freedom in this world. <laughs> Somebody liberate me from this horrible oppression. I'm ridiculous about structure. Come bear it makes me really angry that's why we're freelancers <laughs> right because I you know my my other half is um he works in IT yeah. and he works Monday to Friday 9 to five thirty, and sometimes I'm jealous of that when at the weekend he's able to not think about work at all and have a weekend which as freelancers that do yeah. just doesn't happen for us you know I I try and not do it you know relax on a Saturday and all I'm hearing the voice in my head going well you could be doing xyz yeah, I, it's it's endless, I yeah. think, if you're freelance. I, I can never stop, really. Well, the workday doesn't end. And there's always that fear that there might not be more work, you know. So, again, it's that yeah. saying no, no to absolutely. things. You know, I'm writing this book at the moment and I have to, I've had to go, right, I have to start turning other things down because you're not creating the time, you know. But you always worry if you say no to something, they'll never ask you again which is crazy because they do. <laughs> yeah. And actually, I mean, you have to be careful of that yeah. because if you, as like when you become a writer, a professional writer, you kind of get obsessed with turning stuff down to make, make time, or I do anyway, mm. to make time to write. And you can end up just yes. turning everything down. <laughs> yes. out of habit, you know? And seeing everything as this horrible imposition yes. on your practice. <laughs> like how dare they invite me to this? Don't they know I've got things to say? <laughs> the <laughs> world has to hear my thoughts. Um, yes, but right. it, yeah, so it's yeah, it's, um, it's this sort of this time of enforced being at home for me. I've had to build in a structure, otherwise I'd sleep through it uh, because that's my way of coping with stress. Is yeah. if I'm if I'm stressed, if I'm anxious, I you know part of PDD certainly of my PDD is high levels of anxiety and. Um, my way of coping with anxiety is to shut down. Mm. And despite 
yeah. knowing rationally in my rational brain to go, if you're feeling overwhelmed, the best thing you can do is something. You know, if you're feeling like you've got too much to do, do something. Because then it, I, I remember a, a therapist saying to me once, the, the best way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time, which was just, you know, when you feel like you've got, oh, but eat this entire <laughs> elephant, how am I going to do it? It's like, well, one bite at a time, which is a lovely bit of advice. But in practicality, that's just not how my brain yeah. works. My brain goes, I've got too much to do. I'm overwhelmed. So what I'm actually going to do is get under this duvet and hide. Um, and hopefully it'll all just, just go away yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and of course that only makes things worse yeah but on the other hand it's so yes, really it really does it? it really does <laughs> but it's it's like the it's like the lovely Anne Lamott line isn't it you know if you need to write something you do it bird <laughs> by bird <laughs> you do it like yeah. little bit by little bit. being autistic I you know executive dysfunction mm. can be a problem for me like sometimes I can't make my brain do mm. do anything and that particularly like say if I've got a, a meeting booked for two o'clock my whole being oh. is focused on that two o'clock meeting and I won't be able to do anything in the morning quite often yeah. which is just you know it's so frustrating my brain is so fucking stubborn sometimes I felt like I wanted to cry when you said that because I <laughs> absolutely and I find it such a failing in myself that if I have something like for example I've got a gig tonight an online gig and it's a, a charity gig I've just got to do 10 minutes of stand-up I don't have to prepare for it it's it's my bread and butter it's what I do it's online you know, I don't, I only even have to get dressed from the waist up, you know, it's really not, but because that's there, it sort of blocks the rest of my day somehow. Yeah. It's yeah. there looming. And that's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. I think I, I struggle with, mm. um, I, I'm a sort of list writer. I'm a, you know, in my day I have a list and that's fine. But when there's events on that list, if there's more than two a day, that's when I start to struggle and get overwhelmed, not because I can't cope mm. with it, but because I think I can't cope yeah. with it. And I start to panic that I can't cope with it. And I, but it sounds so ridiculous to say, you know, oh, I've got this gig at eight o'clock tonight. So I'm struggling to write this thing at one o'clock in the afternoon. I can't, I can't even explain it. Yeah, no, it's weird. And if I have to travel for something, that's even worse. Like until I've done the travel, I'm obsessed with it. I, I'm worrying yeah. about the travel. Like, not that anything's going to happen, but just that it's this thing I've got to do. And I know that if my attention lapses, I can, I'm, I'll yeah. miss a train or, you know, Absolutely. miss a time slot. And so, you know, I'm, I'm horrible for arriving at stuff three hours <laughs> early because then I know I'm there and I, you know, I can't get over it. And so it's ridiculous. I, it's very hard to explain, but it's a, it's a mindset. The moment I knew that Matt was the right man for me was the first time we went on holiday together. And he was absolutely on board with us being at the airport three hours early. Because um, I, ca I cannot, I don't understand these people who will go, oh, there's loads of time, we'll get to the airport with half an hour to spare and whiz through. I, I can't, I, ha I am there so early that I have time for a three-course meal yeah. in, you know, <laughs> Jamie's Italian or whatever they've got there. Because absolutely. I cannot bear the thought of rushing for a flight. And that's if I haven't booked a nearby hotel yeah, overnight. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. If yeah, it's a morning absolutely. flight, I'll definitely no, do that. No, rushing is awful. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even if it's quite a late morning flight, I'm yeah. tempted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I travel a lot for my job. Mostly, you know, I drive 30,000 miles a year on a normal year, just driving around the country for gigging and touring mm. and stuff. And I do find if I've got a four-hour drive to a gig, 
and then a show and then a four hour drive home or even less than that, say two hours each way. I go, well, with the gig, I, I sort of have to remember sometimes to include that travel time. That is part of my working day, even though I feel like it's just sitting in a car, yeah, you know, absolutely. and I think sometimes you have to go, okay, well, you don't have to do, you know, six hours of work at home before you drive two hours to do a gig and then two hours home again. You don't have to do that. You know, not you, you're allowed to rest that day before you drive yeah. to the gig or and balance is so hard. And yeah, that's where I think yeah. I am jealous of people who have a nine to five, where that sort of balance is forced upon you to a certain extent. You know, you go, this is when you work. This is when you don't work. And knowing that you've got mm. an income and things like that. I mean, I, how, how long did you spend kind of trying to oh, make God. it? Because, you you know, you've been you've had such a lot of success the last particularly the last year. Actually, you've been everywhere. But, you know, you've been you've been up there for a few years now. Yeah, that's great. Radio 4 have Thank noticed you. you. Like Radio 4 really don't want to know me. Honestly, we keep trying, but they're like, no, 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 oh, too common. Uh, oh, mate, tell me about it. Well, yeah, that's a story for off air. But, um, I don't know how you get away with it, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, we won't go there. <laughs> but I, I, when I first went full time as a comedian, so when I, I'm just trying to think now, I went part time in my job first because I couldn't, I was lucky in that when I started doing stand-up, I was single, I don't have kids, and I didn't have a mortgage. So I could take some risks that maybe I might not have been able to do had I had some other responsibilities, you know, and it was at that time. And I also mm. started stand-up a bit late, really, compared to most people. So I did my first open spot when I was 33. So in some ways, it was yeah, easy okay. because... I didn't have these other responsibilities, but in some ways it was difficult because, you know, I had a proper job. And so it was like, am I going to risk that? You know, am I going to risk a career for, for this whim? And actually I thought, well, yes, I am, because why wouldn't I, you know? And, um, and a friend said to me, like, no one's ever said, oh, I wish I hadn't chased my dream. You know, no one's ever said that. People have regretted that they didn't, yeah. but no one's regretted <laughs> yeah. that they did. Even if they, it didn't work out, at least you tried, you know, it's that, corny old thing isn't it yeah like the worst you're going to say at the end of that is exactly. like, I gave it a go you know and I gave it my best shot exactly. I mean that's you know so how does that that's this is what I'm interested in because you know you've talked mm. about having PDD how does that work like pursuing something I mean if it's anything like mm. my career has been that is so tenuous and so full of rejection mm. and so often about fighting other people's disinterest in you mm. radio for when, <laughs> um, when like your self-confidence isn't necessarily that robust yeah in any way how do those two things fit together well the thing is for me so a big feature of pdd and particularly for me is a, a this sort of fear of rejection and mm. and sort of finding it very difficult to take criticism and you sort of go, well, how on, why on earth would you be a stand-up comedian if if that's how, you know, you feel? But actually, I felt like that my whole life about everything. Yeah. So it doesn't make a difference to add another thing to it. You know, I, I'm no more worried about being rejected by an audience yeah. than I am by my partner, you know, constantly, even though he's shown no. <laughs> we have a joke about it because I regularly dream that he's dumped me all the time. Oh, my God, that's really hard. Oh. All the time. But we have this thing. I say, as long as 
it's dream Matt that's being an asshole. We're fine, you know. <laughs> like as long as we keep it that way around, it's fine. <laughs> um, but I do constantly think, you know, well, he's going to wake up one morning and realise the terrible mistake he's made, and, and that's sort of. I have to be very mindful of that because you don't want to end up being a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, I don't want to be so clingy yeah. and worried that he'll leave me that he can't cope and he leaves me. Do you know what I mean? That, and that's something that's, I think mm. was definitely a downfall in, in relationships in my twenties when I was just so needy and clingy and I've had to learn not to be. Um, and also it's about finding the right person, the person who is secure enough in himself to be able to go, you know, I'm steady yeah, and I'm fine and I and that. it's yeah, to cope with that. He's a saint, really, bless him. I'd never tell him that, but he is. So so you know, just to <laughs> no, add don't a, let on. Yeah. Don't let on, it'll go to his head. Absolutely. So to just to <laughs> sort of add another thing to be you know, I was whatever job I did, I was worried about failing at it and worried that I wouldn't be good enough and worried, mm. you know. So it it sort of doesn't really matter what the job is. So to go into a job actually where everyone feels a bit like that is sort of a bit, it makes me feel a bit more normal because, <laughs> really do you know what I mean? Because <laughs> of course it's normal to worry that a, an audience isn't going to laugh at you. That's not me being mad. That's a genuine concern when you're a stand-up comedian. And you need that. You need to have that concern. Yeah. Absolutely. That's what drives you, that fear, that adrenaline yeah, that they might not laugh, you might die. Because everyone who I talk to about being a comic, you know, says, oh, I couldn't do it. Their, their worry is dying on stage. And I always say, well, you, you know, as a comedian, you do die on stage, mm. but you don't actually die. And it's, <laughs> you know, about getting back up there again the next day. That's the tough bit. But yeah, so I think that the thing I like about stand up for me is somebody who's quite anxious and you know, in social situations, people think that if you're a stand-up comic, then you are this sort of boundless self-confidence personified. And for some, that's true. <laughs> for most of us, it isn't true. And I am a very different mm. person on stage than I would be if you met me in a party. Uh, for a start, yeah. I probably wouldn't be at the party. You know, <laughs> like you wouldn't meet me at party. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't meet me at a party because I'd not be there. Uh, I think the best parties are, are the ones I haven't <laughs> been to because I'm not good with people I'm not comfortable around or I don't know. And I'm always worried that, and again, it's this fear of rejection. I'm always worried that, am I saying too much? Am I saying too little? Am I, am I being annoying? Am I, you know, too this? Am I too that? Am I, uh, whereas when I'm on stage with a microphone in my hand, then I know it's always my turn to speak. And I'm, I know that I can't be, <laughs> speaking too much does that make sense do you know what I mean so I no I absolutely I absolutely know I actually love public speaking yeah which you know most people find really unpleasant but I yeah like I know that I'm supposed to be holding space at that point yeah. and I'm allowed to talk too much because that's the expectation and I'm in control of I'm in control of it I like it it's yeah. fine totally, totally <laughs> and also that. like no yeah nobody's gonna say anything about my work that I haven't already thought you know, like I've already thought worse about it. It just isn't, it isn't a surprise if anyone's critical about it. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? It's not what people expect. Totally. And this is what I always say about Twitter trolls and things like that. Um, so th this 
you know, one of my focuses for my anxiety has always been since I was really young has been about how I look. And, mm. and it's a weird, and this is exactly what I'm writing about at the moment, but it's a weird thing because when someone tells you that they feel ugly or unattractive or that they, you know, they have these sort of body image issues. If you're a nice, well-brought-up person who's kind and your automatic response is to say, you're not ugly, you're beautiful, right? Which is lovely. That's a lovely thing. It's not a helpful thing <laughs> sometimes because I think no. what, what often happens, and one of the reasons it's so difficult to talk about, and it's it's what I found when I tried to write an article sort of putting this into words in, in well, however many years ago, eight years ago now in The Guardian, was people got really angry because they felt I wasn't ugly enough to have this opinion about being ugly. Oh my God, you can't win, can you? You can't win. And, and that was, I mean, you look at the comments in that article, it's hilarious. It's half of them saying, oh yeah, she is ugly. And half of them saying, she's not ugly. And you go, well, this is, oh this is the thing, isn't it? Uh, you know, it's all about how you, and, it, and it's what they fundamentally or willfully misunderstood is that it doesn't matter whether anyone else thinks I'm ugly or not, it's sort of irrelevant. It's about your perception. Exactly. And it's what, um, you know, I've had a lot of CBT in my life, cognitive behavioural therapy, and the thing that they teach you is about these core beliefs that we have about ourselves. And they're usually formed when we're kids or very young adults. They're not necessarily based on real world evidence or anything. It can be based on something someone said to you once that you've sort of dwelt upon for the however long or or that you've morphed into meaning mm. something that suits what you think about yourself and these core beliefs are really hard to shift and whether they're true or not is utterly irrelevant because once they've set in your being yeah it, it's very difficult to quit so you might have the core belief like I do you know that I feel unattractive now through CBT you're taught to sort of look for evidence to kind of support your point or not support your point. So as much as I might go, well, you know, I've got someone who wants to marry me, so I can't be that unattractive. I've got, you know, X, Y, Z. I have to, <laughs> that's not my natural state of being. My natural state is to think, oh my God, I, you know, thank, thank God this morning we're doing this without videos on. Otherwise I would have had to put a full face of makeup on to face Catherine this morning because she wouldn't want to look at this. You know, that's the default <laughs> setting. Whereas actually, I have to override that and go, Catherine won't give a shit what you look like this morning. And <laughs> also like, you know, very well, I'm face blind. Well, yeah, exactly. even, so it makes no like... difference. In fact, I could have got someone to sub in for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you actually could. I'd have known your voice though. You'd have had to have voice over it. <laughs> I'd have been like, oh, I don't remember her hair being that colour. <laughs> yeah so it's yeah I, but I mean I think you know like what you're talking about I you know obviously you have the kind of extreme end of it you know it's a really persistent dominant thought that, that happens over and over again for you mm. but it, it also speaks to being female mm -hmm. I think for most of us and to that ongoing experience of wondering if you're pretty enough because so much in our society is judged on pretty and I find that really, you know, like as a, you know, I'm like 44 this year, I think. I keep having to look it up, actually. I can't remember how old I am this year. But I'm, I'm kind of, I'm in my mid-40s now. And my attractiveness is no longer relevant to the world, honestly. I mean, 
I, it really, it's just not what I'm out there trying to offer. Mm. And I've been married for 20 something years now, 22 years. Mm. Like that, seriously, how attractive you are becomes very, very irrelevant <laughs> after you've been married that long because you don't even look at each other anymore. It's like, yes, <laughs> like you just assume that the other person's still there. <laughs> <laughs> I always worry I'm going to die of some hideous skin cancer that takes over like the back of my neck and I can't see it. And my husband just won't notice. <laughs> yeah. like, he doesn't look at me anymore. I really, I really think that that's a very, very kind of acute possibility in my life. Anyway, I'm rambling. But what I'm trying to say is not even funny. That is really it's good, dark, happen. but it's quite amusing. Um, it's quite dark, but it's really true. Um, but it's so funny that despite the fact that I'm not offering pretty to anyone. And I, you know, like I did used to try and do that and I gave up because I realised what a fool's errand it was, mm. that I still have that thought that pops into my mind every now and again, that like, oh, the person I'm talking to is going to be really disappointed because I'm not attractive enough. Yeah. You know, like nobody ever said that writers were supposed to be attractive. I mean, actually quite the opposite, but that it's so persistent in our, in our society. Yeah. And, you know, if you say that I mean I posted on Instagram recently about noticing how much my face has aged this year and I meant it in quite a neutral way actually yeah but you know like loads of people crowding in say oh but you're so no 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 it's like yeah, but that's just not it's not even true like lying to each other doesn't help no. my face is aging and by telling <laughs> someone that they're beautiful if they're not if they're, it's not even if they're not but when they're expressing like you say just a fact saying oh my face has aged this year because everyone's face has aged this year you know and by saying by yeah. what you then doing and say no you're wrong you're actually this you go no hang on a minute stop negating what I'm saying in a way that you think is helpful mm. because why does beautiful have to be the optimum state the problem it's such a complex problem because we tell our children that looks don't matter mm. yet they go out into the world and every bit of evidence in front of them shows that it does. Because do you know what, mum? If looks don't yeah. matter, why do you put makeup on every time you go out? Why are you always dieting? Why, why is your behaviour not matching what you're saying? Mm. And I think that's where we, like, children can get confused about it. She's like, well, you keep telling me this doesn't matter, but it does matter because, you know, so-and-so got picked to play Mary in the nativity because she's prettier than me or... You know, yeah. so it does matter. Or the boys don't want to play kiss chase with me. They want to play it with the this girl. Or, you know, th there's all sorts of evidence in the real world that contradicts that. So rather than just sort of dismissing the whole idea that, that looks matter because it feels shallow, going, well, yeah, no, they, mm. they do matter because whether we like it or not, we're all in a beauty contest that none of us asked to be in. Because people comment on my looks when I'm on Mot the Week. You know, and they'll tweet. And I, there's two two things I think with that. One is, if you think that you're doing that to upset me, mate, I've said more upsetting things about my looks this morning than, you know, <laughs> than you can tell me in a tweet. So d that's not going to upset me. Um, you have to try harder. And also, it's like, who, who said I had to be pretty to tell jokes on television? How on earth is that relevant to my job? You know, no one asked that of a male comedian ever, really. Never. I mean, actually, maybe they do increasingly, though. I mean, maybe it's maybe that's getting worse. Well, but... It is getting worse. It yeah. definitely is getting worse in a visual culture we live in and this sort of Instagram culture and TikTok and all the rest of it. Because if you look now, there are more female comics on TV than ever before, but they are mm. almost all, myself excluded, but then I'm not on TV that much. But the, a lot of them are very attractive women. 
and I don't want to take that away from their yeah. comedy, yeah. you know, and the fact that they've earned their place there. But the the fact is, if you've got two women equally good at comedy and one of them is hotter than the other one, the hotter one's getting on telly. That's just the way it is. You know, there's yeah. a, and, and I, there's some programs, I don't like to name them because, you know, friends of mine are in them, but I call programs for clever boys and pretty girls because the, the <laughs> girls in it are all clever and funny as well, but they also have to be pretty to earn their place, whereas the boys can just be funny yeah. and clever. You know, so they have to tick two boxes. We have to tick three, mm. and, and you see it on TV all the time. Don't you? There's that old trope of the sort of it's the Philip Schofield, Holly Willoughby thing, isn't it? It's the older male presenter with beautiful young <laughs> presenter, the Bruce Forsyth test daily. The you know, and, and they're aware of yeah. it now, and it is yeah, changing. Yeah. But it's not changing enough, is it? I mean, TV is ultimately full of hot people, yeah, and. And that's why yeah. when someone like <laughs> is on TV, who's, you know, not a size 10 and is not conventionally pretty, it gets commented on all the time, you know. And if it wasn't a problem, mm. if it wasn't a thing, it wouldn't get commented on. So that proves that it, it is a thing, you know. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think absolutely. we have to, to sort of acknowledge that, that looks matter. But what... I think is the important thing is particularly with kids is if, you know, if your child is worried that they're ugly rather than just going, you're not ugly, you're beautiful. It's a going, well, why do you think that? Because that's the chance you've got, you know, they might say, Oh, somebody at school said this to me and you go, well, did they say that to you? Do you think because they really think that or were they cross with you? And that's why they said it or, or were they jealous of something or were that, you know, there's many reasons why. And how painful it must be to, to the people that's, that have given the insults for it to be so important to them that they use it against other people. You know, you know that they're internalizing some kind of demand to be beautiful as well by the fact that they're throwing that around as a, as an Absolutely. insult. And also, you know, I, I have a new strategy with, with um, trolls on Twitter. And my strategy now is usually just mute them, ignore them. That's the, and particularly if they, mm. you know, these ones that are just a fake name with a fake photo, are just trolls, they're just trolls. And the worst yeah. thing you can do is to engage with them in any way because it just feeds them. That you know, that's all they want yeah, is is yeah. to see that they've riled you in some way. Attention. Um, but the ones mm. that I do respond to now are the ones where it's somebody who has their picture and their name, because I think you must be hurting because a happy person doesn't yeah. do that. A happy person. There's one that yeah. always sticks in my mind, and obviously, what I don't do ever is go looking for myself on Twitter. You know, I'd never look for It's only when people at me on Twitter, so it comes up in my newsfeed that I see these things. So the fact that some, you know, people can say what they like about me without tagging me, that's entirely up to them. I don't, you know, it's none of my business what people want to say about me. But when they tag me in it, knowing that I'll see it, then it's my business. And if they've done that with their name and their picture, and they, so they're owning that. They're not just trolling. They're owning that's what they want to say to me. They've, they've made yeah, a conscious decision yeah. to go, this is me and this is what I want to say to you. And I had one that just said, it was just at Angela Barnes, what a hideous oxygen thief you are. And I was just like, oh, wow. God. And it was this guy. And I just thought, mm -hmm. what, what would it take for me to write that to somebody that I don't know who is a mm -hmm. human being? What, how bad would my life have to be before I felt that that was, you know, an okay thing to do? So I just tweeted him and I said, I hope you're all right, basically. I think I just said something 
like, you know, a happy and secure person doesn't do this. So whatever's going on for you, I hope you find peace because you clearly something's going on. And um, that's so powerful. Did he respond? He, did. Well, he responded and he apologized. He just said something like, you know, it, it was something along the lines of, you might not be my cup of tea, but I, there was no need for me to do that, you know, or that was, I don't know why I did that. Wow. And I was like, yeah, I don't, wow. you don't have to like me. And, and that's the other thing as well it, that I sometimes pick people up on is um, this sort of sense of entitlement that every single thing on TV should be catered to your exact taste. Yeah, yeah. It just strikes me as such a huge sense of entitlement. So when I, you know, people tweet you going, I don't think you're funny. It's like, fine, you don't have to because comedy is subjective. We've all agreed on that. So how can I possibly be funny to everybody? I can't. That's an impossible job. So if I'm not your cup of tea, watch something else. I don't mind. You know, I don't mind if you don't watch me. We'll be back with more from Angela Barnes in a moment. But I just wanted to let you know that I'll be releasing some new dates for my writing courses soon, as well as some brand new online workshops for people who want to explore the concept of wintering a little more. If you'd like to be the first to know, go to katherine-may.com forward slash newsletters and click the link that's right for you. I promise not to spam you and I'll keep your information safe. And now back to Angela Barnes. But that's so interesting, isn't it? Because I think most like 80% of criticism that comes towards you is that it's like this isn't to my taste that's what it's that's what it's saying when when you kind of look into it and you sort of think where did you ever get the impression that everything was made for you yeah like at what point did you not think oh I can just change the channel or Mm. oh this book isn't for me yeah yeah totally like nobody was nobody was ever making that offer and quite often they're people who you'd never have targeted as a demographic. So they've kind of wandered in <laughs> yeah. and got angry. Like, yeah. I'm not for you. It's fine. <laughs> I mean, I get like, I get kind of angry right-wing middle-aged men mm. shouting at me on Twitter or whatever saying, you just want everybody to be weak. And you know, like, uh, uh, what? what? <laughs> Sorry? No. I mean, what? calm down a minute you know? <laughs> and you kind of think what yeah a bit like you like what's going on? I mean I don't ever respond sorry mm. I'm less I'm less generous than you but I just think what is going on in your head that made you angry about that rather than thinking oh hang on I, I've got a nuanced disagreement about it <laughs> you know? there is a certain demographic where there was a time when everything was made for them and I think that's a sort of you know, white male demographic, particularly, and not not only before any, you know I get any angry tweets, but where TV programs <laughs> were made for them, you know, um, yeah. and and if they weren't, if they were made for they they were in a specialist for women slot, despite us being fifty one percent of the population, you know, you have newspapers mm. would have the women's section as if we don't you know, we're not interested in the news. We need our own bit with the makeup yeah. tips. And so they, they <laughs> were used to everything. And that's where sometimes, you know, people go, oh, women, I don't like female comedians because they only talk about women's stuff. It's like, what, men, men's com- male comedians don't talk about male stuff, you know? 
Oh my god! If I have to hear another joke about someone's balls, oh, do you know what I mean? Or someone's <laughs> flipping prostate examination. Oh, and I, I remember uh, Sean Walsh had a lovely, lovely line. He said once, and I'll get it completely wrong, but that it was, it was along the lines of he said, um, "People think that female comics just talk about their periods all the time." He said, "Do you think that male comics wouldn't mention it if they bled out of their dicks five days a month?" <laughs> So true. <laughs> oh, we'd hear so much about it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You're like, well, of course it's part of our experience. Yeah. Yeah. And it's an experience that's been hidden for ages. And actually, I think, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. it's not an experience that, you know, a handful of people go through. It's an experience of 51% of the population. Mm. And yet we're supposed to, because so much has been tailored towards the male audience for so long and women do find that funny because that's all we've had you know so we've been conditioned to go yeah I can laugh at the male experience because I'm able to be empathetic in that way or I'm able to laugh at someone's experience that isn't mine and and I don't know where this sort of ideas come from that we can only find things funny if they're directly within our own realm of experience it's bullshit. It's such a, it yeah. makes no sense. So, you know, I always think women's, oh, I don't find women funny because they talk about things I can't relate to. Go, who said you had to relate to something to find it funny? That's insane. It's a really bizarre idea, actually. And that's the job of storytelling. That's what we tell stories to do, to like give people a yeah. hit of that experience. That's what's interesting about it. Exactly. Such exactly. a strange attitude. Yeah. But that's, you know, entitlement, I think, has been really exacerbated by social media and you see it on if you watch something like I love a bit I love MasterChef right and whenever celebrity MasterChef's <laughs> on I'll have a look at Twitter and every single time every single time you get people going huh, supposed to be celebrities I don't know who they are and it's like just because <laughs> someone isn't famous to you yeah. doesn't mean they're not famous to someone you know oh a YouTube star that's not a famous person um it is because oh they've got God. 10 million yeah. people that are fans of theirs so I mean, they are famous I mean whether you like a, it or not it's a new world to me but my son watches these like YouTube uh, broadcast YouTube broadcasters that makes me sound really old doesn't it? YouTube broadcasters, <laughs> these young taps who are talking about uh, Minecraft and Adopt Me and all this kind of stuff. And they, I mean, there's one girl he watches. I have to admit, they're mostly young men and they do drive me crazy. There are some, there's some really problematic stuff that's on there, but let's not go into that for now. Mm. I think there's a whole podcast we made about that. But mm. they post up a, you know, 30 minute video of themselves playing uh, Minecraft going, dude, bro, for, you know, like every day and every day, 10 million people watch it. If that's not famous, I don't know what is actually. I mean, yeah. that's extraordinary. I yeah. don't think we've ever been able to conceive of that kind of thing before. <laughs> I mean, that's it, just because we don't get it. does We're not supposed to get it. it no, it's like it's when, you know, when I was a teenager, I remember being really pissed off when my dad declared that he liked Nirvana. And I was like, no, that's mine. You can't have that. <laughs> you know, kids are supposed to like things that adults don't get. That's the law. So I'd be more concerned if, you know, if you said to me, oh, I sit with my son and watch these guys on YouTube, they're brilliant. I'd go, well, that's not right. That's not how it's supposed to be. No. That's his thing that he gets that you don't 
No, and absolutely. And it, it's, for me, it's quite transgressive and it's supposed to be, you know, it's, it, there's a mm. lot of stuff about making money and stuff that I find really uncomfortable, but maybe I need those uh, yeah, buttons yeah. to push. But yeah, it is just like, you know, I remember my dad saying, the thing about Nevermind is it's just a straightforwardly great rock album. And I wanted yeah. to kill him when he said that. You know? yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted stop to, liking I wanted what I like. Anything other than a straightforwardly good rock album. You know? yeah, totally. <laughs> anything but. Oh, I remember. I remember the the first, so my parents both loved comedy, radio comedy I was brought up on and and like Monty Python and um, all of that my family loved. And I can remember so clearly the first TV comedy that my parents didn't like that I liked and that was Mary Whitehouse Experience. And when that came on. Oh my God, are we both Mary Whitehouse geeks? Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, we were grammar school girls at the same time. I was such a fangirl. Oh, but you had to watch it (laughs) because the next day at school, that is all everyone was talking about was the last night's episode of the Mary Whitehouse experience. Yeah. So you had to watch it. And I loved it. And my dad didn't find it funny. And I, that was the best news in the world to me. It was like, yeah, you just don't get it. And you know, that's how it's supposed (laughs) to be. I'm supposed to go to my dad. You don't get it because this is for me, not for you. You know, in the same way that Python was and, to him, yeah. that his parents didn't get Python, yet he loved it, mm, you know. Mm. And that's all it is now, but it's just on such a massive scale because now everyone can be a broadcaster, everyone can make content, for want of a better word, that it, it's suddenly yeah. on a scale it's never been on before. Yeah, and, and actually it means that stuff is being expressed that hasn't been expressed before. Absolutely. And you know, it's really easy to see the negatives in that, but it's hugely positive for so many different groups of people who's, you know, who just haven't been represented before. And, you know, there's a political dimension to it. You know, it takes away the gatekeepers that are the commissioners at channels and things who um, were always a filter to it. Where, so obviously, like you say, there's dark and light to this. There's when anyone can put anything out there, you're going to have people putting things out yeah. there that are unpleasant or that you don't, you know, conform to your worldview or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But the other side of that is voices getting heard that were traditionally, you know, filtered through, not filtering through those gatekeepers for whatever reason, be it, you know, yeah, fear yeah, of yeah. ratings being affected, fear of whatever, losing money, losing advertising revenue or whatever, Whereas now, for example, um, you know, people in the trans community or people, uh, you know, have got an outlet that, you know, they might never have had on television and a mirror. And and it means that young people can see themselves, which is so important. Like one of the things about being a female comic is that when I was growing up, they weren't really represent. You had Joe Brand, you had Jenny Eclair, you had on the radio, you had Linda Smith, maybe. Mm. There just wasn't many female comics. So you just sort of went, oh, that's something that's really hard for women to do. You have to be exceptional. You know, Victoria Wood. Whereas now you see female comics almost evenly represented, not quite, but almost. To a young girl now watching TV, there's no reason why comedy wouldn't be for them. Yeah, it's so much more normal. You know, you have to see it to be it. And and I just think the uh, YouTube and, and people being able to make their own content just shows... People can see themselves, whoever they are. You can see yourself represented. And that's a really powerful thing. Massively. 
No, it's so important. And I like one of the one of the vloggers that my no, you can't even say vlogger, that's wrong, is it? YouTubers that my honestly I am so old. Um that my son watches. Um but yeah, no, so one of the guys that he watches talks about his ADHD, which you know, is so useful and positive for so many people to hear. Mm. And there's another kid he watches who's autistic and has talked like in quite a lot of depth about having difficulties with repeated ticks that have caused him loads of problems and how he's, you know, felt very embarrassed about that. But like how actually the friend that he broadcast with was one of the people that accepted them and accepted them as part of him. And I, you know, my son showed me it because he thought I'd be interested. And I was like, Wow, I, you know, when I was a kid, I couldn't have seen that conversation happening anywhere, not just about someone talking about like difficulties they're facing, but also hearing someone else's acceptance of them. Mm. Like, it's kind of mind blowing. I mean, you know, we come from and like, you know, looping back (laughs) to what we were talking about originally, which is your persistent depressive disorder. Mm. When we were teenagers, depression was a dirty word and it was embarrassing, wasn't it? It was not something that you could have owned up to in public and had expected any kind of positive response. Yeah, absolutely. When I was first diagnosed, I was at university. And I think, I mean, I genuinely think I'd had this condition since I was a child. I think Mm -hmm. I was an odd child. Um, and I think it always been there and it's just part of who I am. And that's why it's not, you know, it's a chronic illness. It's never going to go away. It's part of my DNA. It's part of who I am. There's no cure, you know, and that's fine. Uh, it took me a long time to come to terms with that. And I remember once after a stint in hospital and I came out and I remember my, my dad saying to me, I, I, I sort of stopped taking medication. I ended up in hospital and, um, I came out and I was like, I don't want to take the drugs I don't because I just saw it as a failing and um and my dad is yeah, a yeah. is a type 1 diabetic was he's no longer with us but he was a type 1 diabetic and so he'd been injecting himself with insulin since he was a seven-year-old and um he said to me he just went okay well you don't take your med- medication I'll stop taking mine and I went what are you talking about <laughs> and he said um yeah no he said you're right yeah medications are failing so I'm gonna stop taking mine I was like it's different it's different and he said it's not different it's like you you've got a deficiency you take medication to he said if that's a failing then am I failing by taking insulin because I, I can't dad. produce it I love your yeah he <laughs> was great like that and it really brought it home to me was just um like oh yeah it's 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 no different yeah. it's no different it's a it's a chemical imbalance that the medication restores. And I know that now, but it took me a long time to come to terms with that because it was a, it was seen as being a, a real sort of talking point. Oh, she's on antidepressants. She's on this. She, you know, she has to take drugs. She's mad. Yeah, she's yeah. all these things. Whereas now kids are so open. Yeah. I, I had a lovely moment. My, my friend has a, he's 16 now, but this is a couple of years ago. So he would have been about 14. And, um, I know you and I, Catherine, both grew up in Kent and were grammar school girls where they have, they still have the archaic grammar school system. And um, I I was talking to to my friend's son, who's at Maidstone Boys Grammar School. And I was just chatting to him, you know, I was asking how school was and stuff and talking about his friends. And he was telling me a story about something, I can't remember what it was. And he just said, really matter-of-factly, he was 14, he said, oh, my friend Ollie, he's gay. And he did this, this, this. And I was just like, whoa. When I was 14 at grammar school in Kent, I'm sure I had friends that were gay, but I definitely didn't know it. And they definitely weren't out, you know, and I was like, oh, this is progress. This is amazing. Because it wasn't a, 
you know, a thing. He wasn't making a point of, oh, I've got a friend who's gay. Can you believe it? It was just, oh, by the way, he's gay. And he, <laughs> so he did this, this. And are you, I was like, that in Maidstone, a 14-year-old at the grammar school in Maidstone, this is real progress. This is real, you know, and it made me so happy. I was like, oh, I've got hope for this generation, <laughs> that they're just so accepting. Yeah, no, it's really true. Yeah. I know I've got some friends with an eight-year-old who's already told them that he fancies boys. Amazing. And, you know, everyone's just like, oh, isn't that lovely? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're, just, we're just like, oh, it's so nice that you're talking about that already. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I, my, um, it's, it's changed. It really has. I, my friends, it's the same friend, actually. She's got three kids. So the, the oldest was the one I was just talking about. But her middle son is, he's brilliant. I mean, if any of them are going to be a comedian, it's this one. He's such a drama queen. I love him. But from a <laughs> from a really young age, he's got a little sister who's maybe two years younger than him. They're quite close in age and they're really close. They get on really well, the two younger ones. But he would, like, couldn't understand why she could have fairy dresses, you know. So his mum was like, well, if you want a fairy dress, you can have a fairy dress, you know. And one day they had, like, a non-uniform day at school. And uh, he really wanted to wear a fairy dress. And she really was like, do I, do I let him? Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, I want him to feel fine if that's what he wants to wear. But I don't want to, you know, go here, off you go, dear, have a nice day of bullying. You know, it's sort of, but it was just completely fine. Like he went in his fairy dress yeah. and he's like, oh, he's got a fairy dress on. Of course he has. That's the sort of thing he does. Um, and I just thought, oh, that's, there's absolutely no way in the eighties in Maidstone that that would have that anyone's parent would have sent oh to school God. I mean, a boy to school in a fairy. It just wouldn't have happened. I really no. I mean, it, it, like more than that, it would have been dangerous. It would have been actively dangerous and yeah. frightening. And yeah, we we changed. Yay! Oh, it's been hope. so lovely to talk to you. I've got like a final question. Yes. Um, which I guess I mean I I was just thinking this while you were talking and talking about how you know, how much you struggled with and, and like, and I think how invisible that is to people because they see you like up on stage being, being funny and being mm. funny is seen as the same as being happy, which I don't <laughs> think is necessarily true. Actually, I think a lot of the funniest people aren't very happy yeah, and that's where they find they're funny. But I wonder if, oh, I, I it's, you know, those awful things where people say, this is more of a comment than a question. <laughs> this is more of a comment than a question, but it strikes me that, the, re- the reason you're so robust about this stuff is because of that sort of background of depression and that background of self-criticism. And it's it's almost like that makes stuff possible for you that isn't possible for people who don't have that hugely critical self-narrative, you know, that, that, mm. that really ugly conversation with yourself that you have sort yeah. of makes you're really robust actually I think, how does that work <laughs> I do think there's something in that I think there's you know there's something in the fact that really no one can ever say anything to me as bad as what I say to myself I am my own worst critic and I know that's a real sort of thing that people say but I really am and I don't think yeah, anyone yeah. has ever said things about my work in reviews or anything like that that I haven't said worse about. So, um, you know, if somebody's made a point in a review, I think very rarely has it ever been something where I hadn't already picked up on it, if you know what I mean. We hadn't gone, well, I haven't gone, yeah, yeah no, that's yeah. a fair comment. I did do that. Or I, I, that wasn't as good as it could have been that bit or whatever. And and there's something in, I, I mean, I did a whole show about this. I did a show called Rose Tinted, which was about how, you know, my whole life people think I'm a pessimist and I expect the worst. But I stand by the fact 
that that's not necessarily a terrible way to live your life because then you're always prepared for the worst. And actually, when the worst doesn't happen, it's a really lovely feeling. And I compare it to how (laughs) I quite like having bad dreams because I have a bad dream and I wake up and my reality is wonderful. Whereas if I have a really good dream where everything's brilliant and you wake up and reality's shit, you know? So I just think (laughs) if I, if I, this sort of robustness, I think comes from expecting the worst and nine times out of 10, the worst doesn't happen. And so that's a, you know, whatever does happen is a positive, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, if, and if the worst does happen, so you're prepared, right? You're prepared for it. Yeah. Go, well, I knew that was going to happen, you know, so I am prepared for it. And and I don't necessarily <laughs> think that all this sort of think positive and it'll happen stuff is, you know, there's something to be said for a bit of visualisation and, and for, you know, hoping for, but also to, to constantly be having your hopes dashed, is a, particularly in the industry I work in, it there's a lot of rejection and there's a lot of times when, mm. you know, you see maybe people that should be doing what you see it all the time. When you go to your local comedy club and you'll see acts, you're like, how are these people not on live at the Apollo? They're brilliant. And you go, well, there's a myriad reasons why they're not. Yeah. And one of them is just luck, you know? Um, and I, yeah. I never yeah. underplay the role of luck in my life. Now, sometimes I might overplay it a little bit because people go to me, now, come on, Angela, it's not all luck, is it? You have worked hard and you have done this. And I say, yes, I have, but yeah. you can't deny that there's been a sprinkling of luck in there because, you know, there's other people that could do what I do that aren't doing it, if that makes sense. Um, and so yeah. yeah, it's a limited field for people that can be on television doing what they do. So... I remember when I first when I first got offered to be sort of more regular on Mock the Week. So I'd done a couple of series where I'd done one or two episodes and my agent phoned me up. And, and my agent, I always, I always say this, my agent is brilliant because he's really good at knowing when to push me and when not to. He's really good at knowing how to talk <laughs> me off the edge of a cliff and how to go, you know, okay, she, I know she really doesn't want to do this and if I push her, it's going to send her into a spiral. But also he knows when to go, she can do this. She just doesn't think she can. So I need to show her she can, you know, he's very good at that. And, and a perfect mm. example of that was when, um, yeah. So he phoned me up. He said, brilliant news. They want you to do four episodes of Mock the Week this series. And I said, I can't do that. He said, what do you mean you can't do that? I said, I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not like that's, I, I've been fluking it so far and I can't fluke it four times in a series. And he had to go, right. You know, they're not doing this because they feel sorry for you. <laughs> like you said, you know, out of charity, out of charity, <laughs> out of because it's like, no, oh, she, let's give her some work. You know, it's like they're making a program they want to be the best program it can be. And they've decided that for that to happen, they want you on four of their episodes. So why on earth are you, you know, it's not your place to decide whether Resisting you're good enough that. or not. It's theirs. <laughs> and he, he taught me off that <laughs> ledge. But my instant reaction was, no, tell him, no, I can't do it. And that's where having an agent is good because otherwise I would stay in my comfort zone forever. And sometimes I need to kick up the arse to get out of it. Oh, I mean, having the right support network is so important. I mean, like that made me think about my agent last week who said, um, you know, this thing we're negotiating, they've asked if you'd want a fee for that. I was like, oh, no, I'm not bothered. And she was like... Catherine, <laughs> we will be asking for a fee for that. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, sorry. Because like, I, I defaulted to the to this, you know, immediate assumption that, no, of course, they won't want me if they have to pay me mm. for it. You know? that's, that's how I think, particularly as women, particularly as working class women, 
we've we're taught yeah. to be grateful for any pennies people throw our way you know and you go oh you're gonna pay me for that oh my god I feel I feel embarrassed about every penny I earn like every every time I earn money I feel a bit like oh god I've ripped someone off really badly there but it's, <laughs> but it's so insane because you work so hard you know and also oh god, yes. have a skill that not everyone's got like if we could all be writers and comedians then everybody would be a writer and a comedian right so it, yeah, it's yeah. and I I think that sometimes particularly with stand-up is um I forget that there was a process to get to where I'm at and I just think like I feel yeah. like I'm hoodwinking everyone because I'm like literally anyone could do this. I like why are they why are they choosing me? It's so e- it must be easy because if I can do it, <laughs> it must be an easy thing to yeah. do, you yeah. know. Because I don't remember having to learn how to do. I, and and sometimes I um I sort of go there's a because I did a comedy course years and years and years ten twelve years ago now. Oh right, and um yeah, it was twelve years ago. Blame me, the comedian in Brighton. And it's a brilliant course, the Jill Edwards course. I really recommend it because what it did for me was just gave me, I would never have had the confidence to just go out there and give it a go without having some structured way in. And because of that course, Jill Edwards, who runs it, who's absolutely brilliant, she now, um, because I live in Brighton, I go back and do a QA and a with her students when she runs the course now. So she runs it twice a year. And um, I'll go in and do a Q&A on a Saturday afternoon with the students so they can ask, you know, what it's like being a working comic and all those sorts of things. And then I, at the end of the course, there's, so there's about 30 people do the course. And at the end, they have a new act night and you have to audition because 12 of you get to then perform in this showcase. And of course I did that in 2009. That was my first ever gig, that showcase. So now I host the showcase at Comedia that happens twice a year. (laughs) I MC it. And it's really good for me to do that because they're all nervous and they're all starting out. And it's a great atmosphere because there's 300 people. It's all their friends and family they've invited. And it's, you know, they can't fail really at this gig. And I always say to them, you're going to feel like, you know, you're the best comedian in the world. You're going to feel like you're Richard Pryor (laughs) after this. And then you're going to go and do an open spot in a room above a pub somewhere and die on your ass. And it'll, that's reality. But (laughs) enjoy this moment. And um, it's really good for me to remember that that's where I came from to where I am now. You know, I came yeah, from doing yeah. that gig where I wasn't very good. I had about four jokes that weren't very good. And, you know, I was nervous and I was, my voice was wobbly. And to go, oh, actually, yeah, no, I didn't, this didn't happen overnight. Like I did, I have had to work hard and I have had to hone yeah. a skill. And because that's of that. so important, isn't it? Yeah. That. And that's it. Mm. And it's because of the work you've done to get to the point is what people are paying you for. Because otherwise they'd pay one of these nervous yeah. kids doing their first gig if they were good enough. Do you know what I mean? Like you have to remind yeah. yourself of that. Yeah. That, yeah. Um, this didn't and happen. And that's where the hard work, that's the hard work part of it, isn't it? That yeah. actually it takes, you know, it takes five minutes. If you're talented, because I do, you know, the truth is that people that do succeed in our industries are talented in the first place. Mm. But it takes talent, which, you know, which you bring to the table and then 10 years of hard work yeah. on top of that talent yeah. to hone that talent into something that is exceptional enough to to attract, you know, national attention or whatever. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's maybe the conversation that we don't have enough. But actually, you know, yes, you do need an element of talent. It's very hard to learn talent, you know, mm. like to you can't you can't really study for that but what you can study for is like the 95% that you need yeah. of polish and control and skill and experience like that that cannot be 
just the willingness to do so much before it breaks through. You know, for every comedian you see on telly, people go, people think that your first TV appearance is your first time doing comedy. They don't see the 10 years you spent on the circuit before it to get to that point, you know. And I think with with writing and with comedy, part of the problem is of people's perception is that when writing is good and when comedy is good, it's good because you don't see the hard work. If you see the hard work, then it's not good, you know. I mean, because there's been nights when I've made comedy look like hard work. Um, and they were not good nights, you know? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so because, yeah. because the trick is in concealing the hard work, people think it isn't hard work because they watch it and it's just a person talking on a stage <laughs> or it's just some words in a book, you know? And so that's why I think it's very easy for people to think that, that it's an easy job and that they could do it. And I think there are a lot of people that have that, the talent, as you said, but without the hard work and the drive, without, I, there's people I know who are really good at comedy, but they're also lazy. Now I'm, you know, I'm lazy in my own way, but I have a work ethic and my laziness usually comes out of my depression. It's not a laziness, it's a shutdown. And that's a different thing. Whereas some people are like, oh, uh, you know, when I was starting out, I was, I'd be doing a full day at work, then getting on a train and going to Leicester for a gig and then coming home and then do, you know, that's the reality is it, the only yeah. way you get better is by getting on stage and doing it all over the country for nothing for a long time. And there's a lot of people aren't willing to do that and that's yeah. fine. But if you're not willing to do that, you're not going to get good at it, you know. And that's the same no, with I writing, really I think, that unless you're constantly writing, you, you, oh, you know, God. the perfect novel doesn't fall out of you <laughs> in one go. And I, Yeah, I mean... I've I've had university students that have said to me, like, right, I've decided I want to write a novel. This is my one shot. If I can't make this work, then forget it. And, I, I you know, I always feel like saying to those people, forget it, nail them. Yeah, you well, know, don't, you don't waste your time. You won't get there. Yeah. Yeah, you won't get there in the two years that, you know, that you've given yourself. Yeah. It, you, you're not committed enough to this. Yeah. Like, you know, and honestly, that often those people's commitment does change when they realise that, but not always. Mm. And it's sort of like, no, sorry. If you if you're not willing to keep going despite endless failure and despite being endlessly dissatisfied with your own work, yeah. then no, you're not you're not going to do it. Sorry. You know, you, you won't want to hear that piece of criticism, but I'm right. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> I think the best comics, well, I know I've never done a show that I think is finished. Even when I'm yeah. touring it around the yeah. country and then I put it to bed, I still go, when I put that show to bed and that tour's done, I go, I never got around to finishing that, you know? And I think that's part yeah. of being a good writer is that Absolutely. feeling that, that something is never the best it can be. But I also think there's this kind of myth that you're, you're striving to reach a fixed point. Mm. And it shocks people when I say to them, like, I still throw out the majority of what I write. Like the majority of what I write is not good enough and falls well below my standards. And, you know, I'm writing a new book at the moment and I have probably thrown out at least a book and a half worth of writing already Mm. on this book. And people say, so so, so you draft loads. It's like, oh no, I've not even reached a draft yet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is a stage I'm sort of at of going, I feel like I've done so much work and I've got so little to show for it because I keep coming Mm. back to it going, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. And that's not just me being the hypercritical me that I am. That's me going, I don't want to show that to anybody because it's not right. 
you know, I know when something's not yeah. good enough. And the whole process has taken me so much longer than I thought it would, even though I know, yeah. <laughs> you know I always say with, with um, writing comedy, you know, 90% is writing for the bin. I, yeah. If I sit yeah. down to write some material, if I write for a day, if I work for a day to, to write some stand-up, I am ecstatic if I've got one joke at the end of the day. At, then the day was worth it. If I come away and there's something I can yeah. try out on stage the next day, that's been a good day's writing. Most days I look yeah, at it and go, no, nah, there's nothing there. And that's the reality of it is you have to, yeah. you know, you have to keep you, the gold doesn't just arrive. You have to keep writing and eventually, hopefully some gold will spill out, you know, but you have to push past a point. Almost by accident. Or, totally. <laughs> it's almost like it's a numbers game. <laughs> oh. oh, yeah. I know. I Absolutely. Know. And, you know, exactly it's right. always the way I can sit down at a desk and go, right, I'm going to write some stand up today. But you know that the best joke in my show will be one that came to me in the car you know, or in the shower or while doing something else every single time. Yeah. Yeah, Every single time. I mean, honestly, one of the best writing tips I can give is go and do the washing up. Like it'll come while you're doing that. It won't won't come while you're sitting at your desk ever. The tyranny of a blank screen is the worst thing in the world. Um, I'm a, I'm a, a, a compulsive note taker as I'm going around. And when yes. I'm in my car, cause I do a lot well, in normal times, do a lot of um, long drives, you know, and tour and stuff. And um, so I get, uh, you know, it's so frustrating when you have ideas and you're driving, you're like, I've got to get this down. So I use Siri, you know, say, Siri, take a note, get this down. So I don't, and then of course I have the joy of trying to work out what on <laughs> earth Siri's written compared that to meant. what I was trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> Angela, thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been amazing. It's been such a lovely conversation. I feel like we could have done it for about five hours. I think Absolutely. we need our own podcast to like Let's advise wayward writers and comedians. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely what I need is more ways we to procrast- procrastinate from actually writing comedy. So yeah. <laughs> Let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> no. we'd feel much better about the world though wouldn't we oh, wouldn't like, we no do. no don't do it like that go and do some washing up <laughs> <laughs> absolutely <laughs> really oh that was so much fun and that's all from us today thank you so much to angela barnes for such a frank and fascinating conversation Hopefully she'll be back on tour soon and you can follow her on Instagram or Twitter for more information. Links are in the show notes. I'll be back next week with another brilliant writer who's intimate with winter. Thanks for listening. The Wintering Sessions is produced by Buddy Peace, who also composed the original title music. You can buy Wintering, The Power of Rest and Retreat in Difficult Times, in all good bookshops. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.